Welcome to the Strive for More podcast. My name is Jared Hendry and I'm the founder of the Strive Accelerator. We are a group of young entrepreneurs that you've probably never heard of and we figured out that a community of like-minded people is the only way to ensure we flourish in business, in our relationships, and in our lives. This podcast is dedicated to uncovering the stories of the communities around successful people that got them to where they are, and in the process, we'll break down barriers for you to succeed too. Dr. Terry Huang is Professor and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management, Director of the Center for Systems and Community Design, and Co-Director of the NYU CUNY Prevention Research Center at the City University of New York Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy. Previously, Terry played a leading role at the U.S. National Institutes of Health on the integration of system science and public health. Terry has had a long history of research and policy leadership in the area of obesity and chronic disease prevention. In addition, he is passionate about systems-oriented community health, design for health, public health entrepreneurship, and strategies for collective impact. Terry has lectured and published extensively on these and other topics. In addition to his varied academic research endeavors, his current work also focuses on innovations at the intersection of business, design, and health. He is the founder of Firefly Innovations, a new global public health entrepreneurship platform focused on fostering entrepreneurs from underserved communities and solutions that target multiple UN Sustainable Development Goals. Terry has received many awards for his public health work, including the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Secretary's Innovation Award in 2010, the NIH Director's Award in 2011, and the National Cancer Institute Award of Merit in 2012. Terry holds a PhD in preventative medicine and a master's in public health from the University of Southern California, an MBA from IE Business School in Madrid, Spain, and a BA in psychology from McGill University. Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. And Terry, I'm I'm really grateful that you were interested in sitting down given uh, I know the immense amount of time that you dedicate to traveling around the world. And I know you were just... um, in the last couple of months, you've been on a bit of a roadshow um, presenting papers and, and, and speaking at conferences. And so just very honored that you were uh, interested in sitting down for this conversation. And I know that this conversation is going to be kind of a wide ranging conversation. It's going to include your work on obesity, uh, discussing nutrition, the opioid epidemic. And I think we'll probably touch on the coronavirus uh, pandemic that's that's um, dominating the news right now. And um also importantly, we're going to talk about your recent initiative called Firefly Innovations. And um, so I'm just really honored, Terry, that you sat down and, and you are a person that has had a, a really impressive career. You have just recently completed your MBA from IE Business School. Congratulations. That's one of the best schools in the world. Thank you. Um, and yeah, and with that, with that said, and, and kind of knowing where you are professionally, just given your bio and, and um, you know, your publications and your, your really prolific academic career, I, I just wanted to ask you a question about the community that has kind of helped shape who you are, because I think we so often hear this myth of the person that through their sheer willpower has kind of accomplished everything in their lives. They've pushed through adversity and challenges and, um, 
and because of that, they become successful. And, and I, that's obviously important. And I don't want to um, take away from that kind of idea, but I do think that there is a different narrative that can be told around the communities and the individuals that have supported us to get to where we are. And so with that, with that said, I'm wondering, Terry, from you, is there anybody early in your career that, that really contributed to your success? Maybe somebody that didn't necessarily have to go out on a limb. Well, uh, first off, uh, Jared, uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, uh, to your question, um, you know, I, I think I have been very lucky over the course of my life. Uh, many people have helped helped me. Uh, and I think that I would probably have to go back to my childhood first. Um, I think my parents have been a big influence on me in many ways. Uh, my mother um, has always uh, been a key provider um, of, of emotional support for me over the years. Um, but one of the things that I think my mother has taught me the most um, is how to focus uh, and how to be patient. Uh, and I think that's particularly relevant uh, in the field that I'm in uh, because science is all about delayed gratification uh, in many ways. Uh, and so um, I think that, um, you know, my father played a, a slightly different role uh, for me uh, in life. Um, and I think a critical juncture was really uh, when I was in college. Uh, I was probably around 19 at the time, uh, and I'd just come out gay. And my father was a geneticist uh, professor um, at the university uh, in Taiwan, and um uh, and as a scientist, you know, he took a very, uh, very sort of uh, empirical approach uh, to my having come out as gay. Um, and uh, as a result, he uh, was really very accepting um, of, of me and really helped my mother um, along the way in, um, in, in, in very deep ways. And I think that that really changed the course of my adult life uh, for the better, uh, because it gave me sort of this freedom, this latitude um, to really pursue life uh, to the fullest, um, knowing, uh, having known, you know, that uh, I was accepted um, by, by my father. Um, and I think in addition to my parents, I also had amazing teachers along the way. I remember, you know, in elementary school, my, I went to school in many different countries uh, throughout my life, uh, but uh, this one school in particular uh, in Taipei, and I had this incredible science teacher who happened to be my homeroom teacher at the same time. Uh, and, you know, he would take a few of us, uh, uh, you know, out uh, onto field trips, um, you know, on weekends, and we would do science experiments. Um, and it was completely extracurricular. Um, and it was just incredible because it gave me this exposure uh, to life, to the world, you know, beyond what one could learn uh, via textbooks. Um, in high school, I was in an IB program, International Baccalaureate Program in Vancouver, and I had an uh, incredible uh, teacher, uh, uh, Leo Boisi, uh, who still lives uh, in the Vancouver area, um, and he was the head of the IB program, and, um, and I think to many of us, uh, you know, in the program, it was a small program at the time, maybe 18 of us um, in the IB program. Um, he was really kind of a fatherly figure uh, in, in some ways um, who kind of looked after, you know, our well-being, if you will, um, beyond uh, the uh, academic aspects, you know, of, um, uh, of being a student. And, um, and I think that that was, you know, um, a big support, you know, for me during 
uh, you know, for many people, very turbulent, you know, as adolescent years. Um, and then moving forward, like to my uh, graduate uh, studies, you know, I, I, I had uh, some really incredible uh, PhD mentors uh, who really opened doors for me uh, in, in more ways than one. Um, I had incredible training uh, in terms of uh, the science, the methods, um, but also uh, being um, uh, exposed, you know, to, to their networks. Uh, the, the networks of my mentors, um, you know, at conferences or just, you know, uh, through scientific collaborations um, in the field. Um, and I think even like some of my earlier jobs, uh, you know, the my supervisors, my, you know, they, they uh, were very important to me uh, in, in uh, different ways. Um, so, for example, when I worked at the NIH, uh, before I actually started that in age, um, I asked my would-be supervisor, uh, Dr. Gilman Grave, uh, whether he thought that uh, the job uh, would mean that I would be scientist first or administrator first. And unequivoc- unequivocally, he said, um, scientist first, administrator second. And, you know, and that was incredible, right? Because... I don't want to go into a job, you know, leaving academia, go into a government job and only to become a paper pusher. You know, I want to make sure that I was still able to uh, innovate and pursue original science. Um, and I think having a supervisor who trusted me so much, you know, at that time, I was fairly young at the time, I think, when I started NIH when I was 29, um, that, you know, having someone to kind of give me that confidence uh, in the latitude, uh, in the trust uh, to really kind of pursue what I thought was needed um, in the field of childhood obesity research nationally. Uh, It was incredible. It was a huge gift. Uh, Gilman also um, turned out to be uh, a mentor, a, a, a supervisor who was great. Uh, at giving staff credit, um, he would always, you know, uh, lift up uh, the staff uh, that worked with him uh, at every opportunity presented to him, uh, and I learned a lot, you know, about uh, from that, um, and, and that's how I also uh, try to approach my own staff uh, today. So I think throughout my whole life, you know, I have had uh, many, many. Uh, uh, family members or you know mentors um, that have helped me along the way. Um, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today uh, without all those people. Terry, if I was in your shoes, I would just take full credit and not give anybody else credit. That it was all you. <laughs> there was nobody else that played any role in your success. Um, so, well, we that's not edit- true. We know that's not true. <laughs> 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 you know, even my current boss, even my current boss, you know, I uh, I worked with him actually uh, at a different university before I came to New York. Uh, he came to uh, New York first, and then I followed uh, maybe a year later. Um, but you know, I think when he took me on, I you know, as a department chair at at our previous university, um, I was at the NIH at the time, and you know, really had limited academic experience. You know, I, I did have one 
a couple of stints of uh, academia prior to going to the NIH, but I was still quite junior uh, when I, you know, started the NIH, as I mentioned. So, um, you know, about five years uh, into my job at the NIH, I, my current boss, uh, Dr. Ayman Elmahandis, uh, who's now the dean uh, at the CUNY School of Public Health, you know, he basically uh, was recruited um, as a dean of the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Public Health. Uh, and, um, and he said, hey, you know, um, come with me to Omaha, Nebraska, of all places, uh, help me set up the school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was an incredible adventure. Um, and, um, you know, and it was a big move for me, you know. So I left NIH and basically jumped back into academia, but not just in any regular job, you know, but really assuming a leadership role as department chair. Uh, to help it, to 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 help uh, I'm in build you know this uh, this new uh, school of public health, um, and so I think that you know many ways uh, I've always had uh, this uh, this um, fortune you know of meeting people who uh, who who entrusted me you know with um, the opportunity um, to do something different, um, and sometimes you know I did great, uh, other times maybe. Not so much, you know, but nonetheless, I had those opportunities um, to really do something different. Um, and um, and so when I moved to New York, um, it was kind of the same thing. You know, I followed the same boss, you know, to a different university. And we have been building up, uh, you know, uh, the School of Public Health uh, at the City University of New York. And we're now one of the top 25 out of 177, you know, schools and programs of public health uh, nationwide, uh, just in a few years, you know, uh, so it's incredible. So I think people taking a chance on me, um, you know, is a, a huge part of where I am, you know, how, how I got to where I am today. And, um, and, and so I think that 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 trajectory is part and parcel you know, to, to my story. Why do you think people trusted you? That's a good question. You know, I think that, um, I think that, you know, perhaps it has something to do with what I said about, uh, you know, growing up under the influence of my parents. Um, you know, I think my mother in particular, she's a, you know, she had a very successful career herself. Uh, trained as a biostatistician, um, but worked for the most part uh, in uh, senior, you know, government roles, uh, where she oversaw a lot of uh, innovation and technology, and um, and and was exceptionally gifted, uh, and still is, uh, at at translating um, uh, what she did um, into public policy um, and. You know, uh, garnering the political support, political support needed um, in order to move forward on or implement uh, policy, and so I think that that sort of um, the ability to think strategically um, and again the ability to focus, um, you know, is perhaps something that you know my mentors and supervisors over the years you know have seen in me. Uh, and the ability to uh, to not necessarily always pursue perfection, but 
to pursue excellence, um, to ensure that you know what I do uh, produce, even if not perfect, um, you know, is really moving the needle uh, and making a difference. Um, and so maybe some of these qualities, you know, have um, you know partly translated translated um, into why others, you know, have been willing to give me the chance. Um, so yeah, but I, you know, it's a interesting question. Uh, I guess one one of these days I'm going to have to ask all of these people. <laughs> there we go. We we can have a roundtable discussion on the podcast about why people trust you. Uh, <laughs> um, you mentioned Terry that that you've lived in and, and been educated in many different countries. Was that purely because of your parents' education and, and that they were kind of moving all over the place for that? Part of it. Yeah, it's part of it. So I was born in Taiwan and um, I left Taiwan uh, for the first time when I was about uh, six, six years old. And uh, we actually moved to uh, Ames, Iowa um, in the Midwest. And, um, and we moved there because my father was actually uh, pursuing his PhD at the time um, in agronomy um, at Iowa State University. Mm-hmm. And um, so we lived there for a few years. Um, and then my brother was born there. And shortly after that, my father finished his PhD and um, decided um, that he wanted to go back to Taiwan um, to... Uh, to teach. And so he was already on the faculty at the National Taiwan University before he started his PhD. So he kind of, you know, returned uh, to his old uh, department, um, you know, at a higher level. Um, and um, and my mother just decided to, uh, to move the whole family back because, you know, um, my brother was just born. And so she didn't think she, you know, could stay behind in the U.S. and take care of two kids, you know, on her own. So we all went back, and um, and um, I lived in Taipei for probably about uh, six years or so, and which was really great um, because I got to learn the language, and you know I probably wouldn't would not be as fluent in Mandarin as I uh, managed to be, you know, uh, now uh, if I hadn't uh, gone back uh, for you know uh, those years of schooling. Um, but then when I was 14, um, my parents decided uh, to send me to Vancouver. And uh, there was a huge wave of immigration out of you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan at the time um, in the 19, this was like early 1990s, um, 1990, 1991, uh, thereabout. So right before you know, Hong Kong uh, was returned uh, uh, from the UK back to China. Yeah, and so there was kind of a, um, a fad in some ways, you know, a lot of <laughs> you just fell into the fad. And, um, well, you know, actually for me personally, it wasn't so much that, um, but for me personally, it was because I was bullied uh, in middle school oh, okay. I'm sorry. and, um, and I had a terrible experience in, uh, in grade eight in particular. And, um, you know, and, so it was kind of like a way out, you know, I was very amenable to leaving the country altogether. So I didn't have to deal with that, you know, probably could have just like moved to a different school. <laughs> I didn't have to leave the country. <laughs> uh, but uh, there was also a part of me that sort of romanticized, you know, the, uh, the education, the free education. Um, well, 
what I meant was sort of education with a lot of freedom, you know, not a lot of stricture um, mm. that I had um, during uh, the uh, early elementary years, you know, uh, in, in Ames, Iowa. And so I kind of had this, you know, uh, this uh, fanciful idea um, that, you know, I, I could basically, uh, you know, finish up um, my uh, basic education, you know, um, through high school um, back in North America, you know, where there would be a little bit more room for creativity and, um, you know, thinking beyond uh, the textbooks. Uh, mind you, I was a very good student, you know, in Taiwan, you know, I excelled uh, academically. Um, but there was always this sort of like creative um, part of me that I think wanted more uh, than just the uh, pure, you know, academics. And, um, and so I think between that um, and the, um, you know, bully experience that I had in grade eight um, uh, and the, you know, opportunity um, to potentially uh, go to Vancouver and finish up uh, high school there, um, you know, became attractive to me. And so, you know, I agreed, you know, my mother, you know, thought it was a good idea. My father, not so much, you know, but he went, went along with it. Um, and so, yeah, so I basically showed up in Vancouver, you know, and uh, my father dropped me off and I was kind of on my own, you know, from 14 onward. Um, wow. So I went through secondary school. I, like I, As I mentioned, I went to an IB school in Vancouver. And um, upon graduation from high school, um, I moved to Montreal and uh, did my undergraduate studies at McGill. And then after that, I moved to moved back to the States. Um, I decided um, uh, that I was ready for warm weather again. <laughs> and so <laughs> I only applied to three graduate programs and they were all in California. And uh, so I um, started my PhD studies uh, at the University of Southern California in LA. And, um, and it was a great move. I really, really enjoyed uh, my time there. You know, when I, when I, a year after I moved to Vancouver, I, um, I actually got quite sick and um, I developed an autoimmune disorder and uh, lost all of my hair. And it was actually quite devastating because I was on oh my, my own. Gosh. And so, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, it, the journey hasn't always been easy, but sort of once you, you know, manage to survive, you know, whatever challenges, um, you know, that came before you, uh, you really do become stronger. And um, so I wouldn't be who I am today um, if it weren't for, you know, all those experiences um, and what I had to go through. And, uh, and for that, I'm deeply grateful, you know, particularly to my, to my parents, you know, who gave me the starting point, you know, the opportunity to actually embark on this journey. Yeah. And based on where your parents started and, and what they, they did for their work, I really think that you had no choice but to, to work in academia and to make <laughs> a, a, real, a real big difference. Well, you know, it's interesting because I actually started grad school not thinking I would work in academia. I initially, so I... I, I did my under, undergraduate studies in psychology, uh, but I knew that I didn't want to pursue a PhD um, in a traditional psychological discipline. Um, so psychology had a lot of different sub, you know, specialty areas. You could 
go into social psych, experimental psych, neuropsych, so on and so forth, clinical psych. Um, and so although I started the undergraduate studies thinking that my ultimate goal was to become a clinical psychologist, by the time I was in my final semester at McGill, I decided that that was not what I was going to do next. Uh, and in fact, um, I, I, um, during that last semester at McGill, um, I did a clinical psych internship um, at a psychiatric ward at the same time as a research um, kind of a honors thesis uh, course, if you will, uh, that was focused on health psychology. Uh, in, in particular, the research was on uh, 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 psycho-oncology, and it was kind of when the uh, research was just burgeoning at the time, you know, um, people started to get interested in sort of psychological dimensions um, of, uh, of, uh, of cancer. And, um, and, and, and that research experience, I think really kind of, you know, uh, defined me and my work um, uh, in many, many ways. Um, but, you know, when I finished my undergrad, I really thought that I really wanted to go into health agency work. I thought I would go work at the WHO um, or, you know, the CDC, um, you know, agencies of that sort. Um, and, um, but, you know, it just kind of turned out that, you know, at the end of my PhD, uh, the jobs, you know, the job opportunities that I had were either in academia or in pharmaceutical companies. And so I decided, um, you know, to basically uh, stay in academia, at least for the time being. Um, wasn't quite ready yet to sell out <laughs> and move to uh, the <laughs> private sector at that time. Um, you know, I was worried that I would not be able to come back um, after a few years uh, to academia. And I was probably right. You know, I think that at that time, I think I made the right choice. So anyway, so that was really the reason why I ended up being in academia. So in 2005, um, I was uh, at Tufts University uh, as a research assistant professor um, in the School of Nutrition there uh, in Boston. And um, I, was a, I had a soft money funded position. So I knew that as my grants you know, started to end, um, that it was time to move on. And I had applied to a lot of different jobs. I was actually getting ready to move back to Canada um, because I was tired of the bush years and needed a change. I had a lot of friends in Toronto at the time. And um, I was uh, given an incredible offer by the University of Toronto. Um, and um, just as I was about to say yes to U of T, I, I got um, this offer from the NIH, you know, to um, join the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development because they really needed someone to help them uh, develop their childhood obesity research program. Uh, and, you know, NICHD is so unique. Um, it's, it's very unique in many ways because it's one of the few institutes within the NIH system in the U.S. that's not disease-focused. You know, it's focused on child health and human development, so it has quite quite a broad mission. Um, and yet, um, as childhood obesity was surging, um, NICHD was the one institute 
um, that was so relevant, but but that didn't have um, a very sort of strategic uh, program laid out. And so it was just such a tremendous opportunity, um, you know, for uh, for me. Um, it, it felt like the job was was written for me, uh, and um, and uh, you know, I had kind of begun to establish myself as a credible obesity, childhood obesity researcher, you know, at that juncture. Um, and it was just an incredible opportunity for me to get this offer. And I reminded myself of like why I decided to pursue my doctorate in the first place, which was to go work at a health agency, right? And so it was kind of like a dream come true. And so I just couldn't say no. And so although it kind of it hurt me, you know, uh, greatly uh, to have to turn down uh, the offer from U of T. Deep down inside, I knew that I had to do this, you know, that I would regret not taking uh, that opportunity at an age, uh, you know, at that time. Um, so I did, and it kind of changed my career <laughs> in many, many ways. You know, it uh, really opened up doors, you know, I mean, I, I, I got to know, uh, you know, everyone in the field, right, just by virtue of the office of my health that, that I held. And, um, and, and because I had this incredible boss who uh, gave me the latitude and the trust, you know, to really um, go in, you know, innovative and creative directions, I was able to really move the field um, and, and, and um, uh, chart out, you know, new paths, you know, for the field at large, you know, out there. And so, um, yeah, so I think that was a really momentous decision, you know, on my part, um, given the opportunities that I had, of course. Um, so anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> um, but this is just to say that, like, you know, my journey is that my, I, I've had a very meandering um, personal and professional uh, path. And, um, and I think one of the uh, lessons, you know, that I try to impart on my students, you know, now is that there is no one path, you know, for, 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 for everyone, right? There, is a, there, there are ways to navigate um, uh, through life and, and, and pro professional, um, you know, careers uh, that could be very unique. You know, and, and, and what's important is to really kind of listen deep down, like, you know, to, 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 to figure out who we are, you know, as individuals and what drives us and uh, what we aspire uh, to achieve, to become. Um, and then finding these, um, uh, you know, career paths that really match, uh, you know, who we are. And, and, and taking a risk, you know, sometimes because, you know, uh, that, that is life, right? We don't always know uh, if the decision, the decision we made today is really the right one. Um, there's a chance that it might not work out. So you do have to take some risk. Well, Terry, what I, what I see is that um, when you confront these huge challenges, like you have to do like obesity and, um, you know, chronic disease management and these big overarching public health issues i'm interested to know like what is your approach to kind of breaking down that problem and and figuring out where to start and, and kind of what can we learn from that right so as a scientist um i'm trained to analyze the problem by first researching what is known about the problem 
what are the solutions that others have tried. Um, and then I like to create a model or framework that helps to identify the components of the problem and how they're related to each other. So I think that that's always a really good starting point, you know, uh, because chances are someone has encountered a similar problem before, and it's always very useful to know how other people have approached the problem and uh, what we can learn um, from how they have approached the problem. I'm also a very visual person, which is why, you know, I, I talk about this, uh, the creation of a model or framework um, that helps me visualize um, what the uh, what are all the contributing uh, factors or components going into the problem, and very importantly, how these factors and components are actually interrelated. No, do you like write that down on a whiteboard, for example, or what does that process look like of, of showing those interrelations? Yeah, it could be. I mean, it could be it could be writing down if it's something really complex and I can't keep it all in my head. Then yes, it's you know um, about writing it down. Uh, much like you know how I approach science, um, I'm you know uh, I, I I I lean very much you know to just like drawing you know on a piece of white paper, um, trying to figure out like okay, what are all the contours you know of this problem and um and the uh the moving parts you know that drive the problem you know i do this kind of on a regular basis in terms of my own scientific work um and then so i think it's very apropos you know for problems in life as well um and then once you kind of have a a, a sort of a bird's eyes view if you will you know of like what's going on really um then you move into action mode um and Problems that are complex, you know, may be so overwhelming that you can't really envision uh, uh, attacking, you know, the entire complexity of the problem at once. So sometimes it's helpful to chunk the problem so we can solve one component at a time. But it's really important to always be keeping an eye on how the solution for that one component might affect other components at, at the same time. And um, because, again, you know, complex problems have components that are that 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 are related and connected to each other. So um, iteration, I think, is really key. We don't always, you know, figure out how to solve the problem the first time. But you can't learn um, until uh, until you try to do something about it. Um, and um, hopefully you fail and then you can learn from that failure. Um, but then the, the key is to go back, right, um, in an iterative fashion, um, and you keep trying, and you keep innovating while you're trying. So um, doing nothing for sure is not an option, and I think that this is also where a lot of people um, fall, you know, because they're so daunted uh, by the complexity of the problem, they don't know where to start, so they end up doing not nothing. Yeah, not making a decision or inaction is still action. Right. And you're kind of perpetuating or maybe even aggravating the problem, you know, by not taking action. Terry, can you speak about your, um, your work on obesity? Like I obviously went back and, and looked through all of your papers and, and tried to make sense of them. And it's, it's a, an exhaustive and, and really kind of extensive list of, of research that you've done. Most of your work is kind of focused on childhood obesity. Um, can you kind of speak to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so 
I started out uh, working really in the uh, specific area um, of obesity that is really focused on the clinical epidemiology of childhood obesity. Um, and so um, my earlier papers um, were really focused on understanding the natural history and the sort of pathophysiological development uh, of childhood obesity over time uh, in childhood and you know, through adolescence. And, um, and, and that was a function of the lab that I was you know, a part of during my PhD years. Um, I, shortly after that, you know, I sort of expanded um, you know, that work um, to beyond looking at clinical risk factors and the clinical trajectory of obesity um, to incorporating more social and environmental uh, dimensions um, of obesity. Uh, and, um, and then even further, you know, um, to looking at, uh, you know, policy uh, implications um, uh, and potential policy interventions, you know, that might be needed on a societal level. Um, when I was at the NIH, uh, between 2005 and 2010, I was one of the earlier champions um, uh, on integrating uh, what is known as system science um, with obesity and chronic disease prevention. And so we were interested in borrowing um, uh, techniques um, used by uh, computer scientists, ecologists, um, and uh, other disciplines, you know, to uh, tackle complexity um, in the context of um, obesity uh, prevention and control. And so it was quite radical um, at the time, um, and uh, uh, it took a lot of persuading and a lot of, you know, a lot of writing and lectures and putting out uh, uh you know, funding opportunities, you know, while I was in the NIH um, to uh, get people to talk about, you know, what this would mean uh, for the field. Um, and, uh, and over time, you know, to really mainstream uh, the concept of, concept of system science um, and uh, in obesity research. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I think my... Um, uh, research background kind of spans perhaps a wider arc uh, than uh, your typical, you know, uh, academic uh, in this space. Um, and, and I think part of that is a function of kind of the meandering, you know, uh, professional trajectory that I've had that I was talking about earlier, um, you know, that sort of led me uh, into sort of new spaces. Um, and, but they're, they're really all connected, you know. So Terry, by by system science, do you mean that that encompasses, like if we're talking about obesity, like are you talking about how uh, income plays a role on obesity rates or how education levels, like is this a broader yeah, perspective? That's, that's all part of it, right? So it's really about understanding how, um, you know, individuals, uh, you know, from your biology to your behavior, uh are connected um, to the broader social and uh, built environment um, and how uh, public policies um, and private sector actions uh, influence um, the social and built environment, which in turn uh, influence your behavior and biology at the individual level. Um, so 
Um, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, about sort of how components of a complex problem are interrelated. Um, you know, that very much is at the heart of systems thinking. And um, so if you apply this to what we're talking about now in terms of, you know, individual and environmental and policy uh, factors involved in obesity, uh, what's really important is for people to realize that, you know, we are all part of this larger ecosystem with many interconnecting parts. Uh, and so the solution to obesity is unlikely to be a magic pill or, you know, a simple panacea, you know, that is going to just suddenly make obesity go away. We will Because need... I've been waiting that for myself. <laughs> we all have. I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> we all have. It doesn't get easier as you get older. Um, but, uh, you know, but, 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 that inf but, but that indeed, you know, we need systems solutions. You know, we need multi-pronged um, solution packages um, that uh, target um, different aspects, you know, of this complex system. Uh, in order to actually shift uh, the needle, you know, on obesity. Um, so that's really what I'm talking about um, in terms of system science. And so what are some of those big contributors to obesity? Like, does income play like a 2% role? And, and maybe this isn't even possible to, to figure out kind of what's the most important, but do we know, yeah. like, what does the research say about the contributing factors to obesity? Well, there's so many, right? Um, this is why it's a complex issue. And income, for sure, um, is an issue. Uh, you know, but income, interestingly, plays a different role in different parts of the world. So uh, here in the U.S. Um, and in Canada, uh, uh, for example, uh, oftentimes, you know, we see higher rates of obesity in individuals uh, who are um, socio socioeconomically uh, more disadvantaged. Um, but if you go to uh, developing countries, um, in many places, uh, higher income um, actually uh, predisposes individuals to greater risk for obesity. Um, and so income is important because income uh, obviously uh, determines, um, you know, uh, your ability to uh, procure and prepare you know, healthy foods. Uh, it influences uh, your ability to pay for a gym, uh, to exercise, mm -hmm. not right. Um, it uh, plays a role in um, uh, where you live, right? Um, and we know that in economically more deprived neighborhoods, there are fewer uh, health-promoting resources and assets um, than uh, economically better off neighborhoods. Um, we also know, for example, you know, that uh, in economically more deprived areas, um, there is a, uh, you know, um, sort of higher uh, density um, of uh, fast food outlets, for example, right? Um, mm -hmm. And maybe there are food deserts, um, you know, so uh, very little access, you know, to uh, fresh and healthy foods because of the lack of supermarkets, all of these things, you know, can play a role. Um, exposure to crime and social disorder, which could lead to stress, which could affect your, you know, mental health and in turn affect um, affect how you eat, how you move, you know, um, how you live. 
And so, um, so income plays, um, a, I think, is a contributor, um, but in very sophisticated ways. You know, it's not just a simple direct relationship that, oh, just because you're poor, you're destined to be obese. No, it's because of all these other uh, uh, pathways, you know, that relate to um, your social and built environment that in turn make it uh, uh, um, more likely, you know, that an individual would be exposed um, to the risk for obesity. Terry, I'm interested. You mentioned at one point there that um, there is no magic pill. There's no panacea that's going to get us out of uh, kind of an. I don't want to say obesity epidemic. I'm not sure if it falls into that it is an category. Epidemic. It, it, it is, is an epidemic. epidemic. Okay, so then right. yeah, there's there's obviously no magic pill, but it, like there's a lot of kind of trends that have that have popped up recently. One of them that I hear a lot about is intermittent fasting. And I don't know, like, obviously that's not a, it's not a cure-all, but has there been research? Do you know of uh, scientifically proven methods that, that this is good or, or helpful for human beings? Yeah, this is a very interesting uh, hot topic. Uh, that's for sure. Um, what I can say is that in animal studies, um, uh, I think that there is some, uh, there are some promising results uh, with regard to in, intermittent fasting. Um, I don't think that we necessarily are entirely clear on the mechanisms uh, by which uh, intermittent fasting might uh, produce a positive outcomes uh, with regard to obesity. Um, it could be, it could very well be uh, just that you know. Uh, when people engage in intermittent fasting, uh, they end up consuming less. Um, and so if you consume less, you're going to have, you know, fewer cal calories. And uh, as a result, um, you're, you know, uh, more likely to lose weight. Um, but there are probably other pathways, you know, at work uh, beyond that. So I don't think that we're quite at a point um you know, in 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 um, uh, in terms of where we are, you know, in science, um, to conclude uh, that this is definitely the solution. Um, by you know, at at an individual level, uh, if uh, you know, this is a strategy that one takes um, by, for example, limiting, you know, the hours, you know, in which uh, you know you consume food, um, or by sort of adjusting the volume of food that you consume, you know, on, um, you know, uh, specific for specific meals, you know, in a regular, uh, repeated way uh, from week to week. Um, if these are strategies that, you know, work for people to help them uh, restrict uh, their food consumption, it probably means that it will work. I think sometimes as human beings, we look to the past and to caveman days, for example, 10,000 years ago, pre-civilization. Mm -hmm. and, and we think to ourselves, I bet at that stage, humans just ate meat. Or I bet sometimes they went without food. Or mm -hmm. I bet they uh, ran without shoes. And we think, that's probably a good thing. I should try that in my own life uh, without yeah. maybe a whole lot of science to back it up. 
Yeah, and we have to be careful, right? Um, because you know, oftentimes there are unintended consequences、um, that people don't realize. So if you're, you know, skipping meals、um, or you know, restricting your food intake,、um, you know, through intermittent fasting, what does that mean in terms of your subsequent consumption? You know, do you then like indulge yourself? You know, when you get the chance, when the Eating hour is open again. You know,、uh, you overconsume to compensate for the fact that you consume very little、uh, in the prior period.、Um, you know, that's a real possibility. And so, I just don't think that we really know.、Uh, you know,、uh, on, at the population level overall,、um, does this produce more benefit?、Um, you know,、uh, than you know than risk. Um, so that's, that's what I do is、yeah. I just restrict my eating hours to two hours a day, and then I have two ice cream cakes during that time,、um, <laughs> because I feel like、right. I can eat whatever I want. Right, right. So I mean, you know, there's been an interesting,、um, some interesting studies like showing, you know, for example, contrary to what people you know had have believed,、um, that in、um, research participants, you know, that wore Uh, uh, physical activity tracking devices, for instance, you know that they did not, you know,、uh, in fact, they end up gaining weight, you know, compared、What? to the controls. And the hypothesis is that probably because you know when people see that they're you know walking so many steps or you know climbing so many stairs, that they then、um, you know give themselves a license、um, to eat more. Because they think that they've already done the exercise, and therefore, you know, they they should be allowed, right,、um, to eat more, and so there could be unintended consequences,、um, and you know, we just don't have uh, uh, enough solid science to really say one way or another. Now, to me, you know, this doesn't mean that at the individual level, like if wearing, you know, activity tracking device, you know, it helps you as an individual. Hey, and you're not likely to,、uh, you know, over、uh, consume, you know, after a bout of exercise. Then,、um, then, by all means, you know, keep using that strategy for you, you know.、Uh, but in public health, you know, what we care about is, you know, guidance, you know, for the population,、um, you know, as a whole, or at least groups of people, you know, within the population. Um, and for making those,、um, you know, guidelines,、um, you know, we obviously need to be much more rigorous in、um, uh, accumulating,、uh, documenting, and examining、um, the body of science、uh, in order to actually, you know, make those、uh, policy pronouncements. What does the research, Terry, say about the role of the intestinal biome? I feel like that might be another hot topic. Is there、mm, any research、yeah. to suggest? Actually, there is a, yeah, there is a large body of research、um, on、uh, the gut microbiome and、uh, and its uh, connection uh, to health.、Uh, most of the studies to date,、um, naturally, have been、um, uh, laboratory studies、um, and、uh, and including animal studies,、um, and、uh, the results are. Compelling, I would say,、um, to show that、uh, there probably is a role、uh, for the gut microbiota in uh, the uh, development of obesity.、Um, 
I think the issue is how does this translate um, into interventions, you know, for people? And that we don't really know uh, quite yet. Um, but, you know, uh, some earlier work, you know, with mice, for example, you know, have, uh, they're really quite ingenious, very, very creative. Um, so re- re- researchers would transplant um, the gut microbiome uh, or, you know, gut microbiota um, from mice who were uh, genetically predisposed to obesity. Um, so these were, you know, uh, obese mice. And, um, and when their gut microbiota uh, were transferred um, into um, lean mice, the lean mice um, ended up developing obesity. And so, wow. so I think that the, I think the, the accumulating um, body of uh, science, um, you know, definitely is consistently pointing um, to a role. Uh, of the gut microbiota, um, but again, how this really translates into uh, workable popu- population level solutions um, to address obesity, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's that remains to be seen. So I can't just eat that probiotic yogurt and think that I've cured my weight Probably issues. Not. Probably <sighs> doesn't mean that. <laughs> you but watch out on the sugar in the uh, in the yogurt <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just creating it i'm creating diabetes here that's my <laughs> yeah, the secondary consequence <laughs> is like what are the, some of those kind of systemic actions that can be kind of taken to, to curb this obesity epidemic like i know that i think it was maybe five years ago i think it was mike bloomberg actually as the mayor of new york mm-hmm. and he banned really large sodas and there was this huge like outcry against it that Right. This is America. We need our forty-five ounce sodas. I don't know the exact number, but right. uh, that's right. hyperbolic, of course. So, just wondering, yeah. is there anything that can kind of be done from a, a systemic level to to help stem this issue? I think, I think, I think there are a lot of things. Um, so, you know, um, although we've been talking about obesity as a big, complex systems challenge, um, you know, there. Um, and, and, and as a result, you know, difficult to tackle. Um, but that said, you know, there have been successes, you know, right here in New York City. Uh, my colleagues and I have just published a paper recently showing a steady decrease um, in the prevalence of childhood obesity among public school children in recent years. Um, and uh, to a great extent, um, I think this is because of the concerted multi-pronged efforts that public health has taken aggressively um, to address childhood obesity in New York City. Um, you know, the, um, you know, we, you talked about income, um, you know, and I think fundamentally we have an economic system that is a promoter um, of in the obesity, o- o- obesogenic environment. You know that 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 leads all of us, you know, to um, kind of have a high likelihood of overconsuming and um, not, you know, uh, exercising and expending uh, uh, physical activity um, related, um, you know, uh, energy. And um, so, I think the economic system, you know, uh, is set up, you know, so that we have, you know, lots of 
unhealthy foods in the supply chain um, and that those foods are really, really cheap, um, therefore very accessible, right? Um, and, um, and, and that we have, uh, uh, you know, urban design uh, that promotes, you know, car transport, um, and therefore we don't have to walk so much, uh, you know, on a routine basis. Um, and so, you know, these are really big challenges. Um, but I think that, you know, given um, the fact that we are now in the early stages of moving towards a more sustainable economic system, because the system as we've known it is creating so much social and political instability that uh, the system has to change, you know, we have an opportunity um, to reimagine, you know, what the system could look like and how. Uh, public health and health promotion could be um, a, a factor uh, in the design of this new sustainable economic system. So I'll give you one example. Um, you know, technology is evolving very fast. And in maybe 10, 15 years, you know, most of us won't own cars anymore because you know, cars are going to be self-driving and they're going to be owned by fleet operators. Um, and so what that means is one third of um, urban land use is suddenly not going to be taken up by cars. You know, that's right. I mean, a third wow. of our city, you know, land uh, is actually used up by, you know, uh, uh, parking. And so wow. imagine if um, all that new space is recuperated by, uh, by you know, uh, by the public you know, what can we do with that space, um, you know, that will actually uh, help create a different kind of city um, that is going to be health promoting, right? Um, a lot of, it gives me, you know, I, I can imagine so many different things. Um, and uh, so so I, I think that technology is going to give us a lot of new opportunities. Obviously, there are risks as well if we're not, you know, thinking boldly enough or uh, thinking ahead, you know, to plan um, for a uh, improved public health future. Um, by uh, if we do, um, then I think we will have tremendous opportunity um, to create a, a better environment and better world. Now, one thing I would mention is that in the study um, that I talked about in New York City, although the um, average, uh, you know, population uh, prevalence of childhood obesity decreased um, for all uh, school children. We nonetheless found that the, the, the disparity uh, between groups actually widened over time. So it meant that not every group uh, uh, has benefited equally um, from the aggressive interventions implemented in New York. Um, and unfortunately, um, you know, uh, it is the, uh, the groups, the communities, um, that are more disadvantaged, um, you know, that, uh, that have not, um, been benefited as much. Um, and so even if they are also, um, showing decreases in childhood obesity, uh, prevalence, um, the decrease is not as much as the decrease in, uh, other kids. So I think that that's really important, you know, to kind of keep in mind that, you know, when we uh, implement, you know, these uh, interventions in public health, 
you know, are we uh, really, um, you know, impacting um, the groups, you know, that really need the interventions the most. I just came back from Mexico, uh, you know, maybe, what, three weeks ago um, before the whole uh, coronavirus outbreak um, really took hold. And I was down there uh, for uh, World Obesity Day. Um, so in, in addition to my academic role, I also serve as the uh, vice president for North America for the World Obesity Federation, which is the umbrella global body um, representing national and regional um, uh, societies um, of obesity uh, science and obesity medicine. And um, uh, March 4th uh, was the first unified World Obesity Day, and Mexico had um, uh, a lot of events planned um, to really raise awareness um, about uh, um, obesity. Uh, but specifically, um, they um, uh, uh, planned these events um, in order to raise awareness about the um, a new policy that they uh, have passed in the legislature, the national legislature back in January, um, on front-of-pack uh, nutrition warning labels. So this is uh, similar to the system um, that's been in place in Chile, um, where, you know, very easy um, uh, designations, labels, um, would be displayed on the front of uh, packaged goods. Um, and, um, you know, essentially would be an easy way to tell consumers whether the product is uh, in excess of sugar, fat, uh, sodium, um, or uh, calories. And, um, yeah, so it's, uh, uh, you know, again, it's a policy that, you know, is very interesting because, you know, we know for a long time now that the traditional nutrition labels uh, with the, you know, number, uh, numbers that are being displayed um, have not been very effective. Um, they're very difficult for consumers to understand. Um, and uh, and uh, so as a result, you know, even though it's a really good public, public, public policy to have nutrition labels, uh, the labels um, traditionally have not achieved uh, the impact that they're designed to achieve and so and i correct think me if i'm wrong here terry but i think that in some cases some studies have actually shown that those nutritional labels have actually achieved the opposite Opp outcome yeah yeah so i have published a paper many many years ago in adolescent boys for example and i found that adolescent boys were actually consuming more when they read the labels um, because it were <laughs> you know that Hypothesis, I couldn't prove this in my study, but the hypothesis was that maybe they were focusing on the protein, for example, the protein content. And so they were just eating, you know, uh, whatever products um, that had uh, higher, you know, protein content. Yeah. Or so, the highest calories in general. So, so people could actually misread <laughs> or, you know, they could read the, you know, um, the, 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 the labels um, and then behave uh, in sort of the opposite way. Um, and, uh, so in any event, so I think, but, but the front of pack labels, I'm excited about the front of pack labels that Mexico and Chile have, um, in part, because I think that this is potentially one system that could actually, um, change social norms. Um, because, 
once people are able to better understand and identify, you know, the products that may not be as healthful for them, um, they are going to demand um, different kinds of products, right? So they will basically choose alternative products that may not have those warning labels, uh, which in turn um, will spur uh, industry to innovate further and reformulate their products or come up with um, new products. And um, so I think that this could really um, kind of uh, disrupt um, the status quo and help create a, um, a, a new ecosystem, if you will, you know, that eventually leads to a better supply of healthy products. Um, and um, so um, I think that's going to be very interesting to watch, you know, what happens. Terry, that may be the perfect transition point um, on the topic of innovation to turn to uh, an initiative that you founded along with the City University of New York. It's called Firefly Innovations. Um, and you kind sure. of focus on um, bringing uh, innovative health policy changes and, and, and supporting innovators in the health policy and, and health innovation space. So I'm wondering if you can kind of just talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um, when I finished my MBA in 2018, um, it was sort of uh, uh, close to the five-year mark um, of my tenure at uh, CUNY School of Public Health. And I have always um, reinvented myself every five years. Um, <laughs> You're like and, a caterpillar. And oftentimes, you know, I think that's actually one of my strategies um, for, you know, being productive, but also making sure that I'm um, always doing something innovative and interesting and helping to move, you know, the needle on something. Um, and But in years past, that usually... Um, you know, meant that I, I would basically move to a different job, go to a different organization. Uh, but this time around, um, I decided to stay put and really become an intrapreneur uh, within my own organization um, and indeed my, my field, the field of public health. And the reason for that is because uh, one of the reasons why I even went to uh, business school in the first place so late in my career um, was because I realized that so much public health uh, research and development um, never really goes anywhere. Um, there's very little scale up um, in terms of public health innovation. Um, and, uh, and even on public health innovation, we could do so much more because, uh, you know, if we only kind of had the right system in place, you know, that allow us um, to learn faster, um, and improve faster. Um, and so part of what Firefly Innovations um, is trying to do is to basically set up um, a public health entrepreneurship platform um, to foster uh, innovation and to uh, uh, um, um, bring business modeling um, into public health so we can be better equipped um, as scaling up and sustaining uh, public health innovation. So it's not to throw, throw out the traditional R&D toolbox that we have in public health, um, but to add to it um, and bring more dynamism um, into how we do public health. Looking forward to the future, what are some of those areas where you think 
this is where entrepreneurs or innovators could really make a difference in the public health sphere? Like what would Firefly really be keen at supporting? Mm, well, you know, I mean, we're in a, a really unprecedented moment right now, you know, with the coronavirus and just think about all the challenges that we have uh, at the individual level, at the community level, at the, you know, policy and system level. Um, there's so much innovation, you know, that can be had. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, one of the uh upcoming events um, that we hope to launch, you know, through Firefly Innovations, you know, will be focused on the pandemic. Um, and I just think to myself, you know, with everybody being sequestered at home, uh, you know, this is going to, we have a mental health crisis, you know, looming. And, uh, and what are the solutions, um, you know, uh, for, for that, right? In addition to solutions for the coronavirus itself. Um, you know, how do we uh, keep communities uh, stitched together when we can't see each other, you know, uh, physically, when we can't touch each other um, and socialize with each other, um, you know, uh, in, in real space. And um, so it, it, there are tremendous challenges. Um, and uh you know, and if we go by the traditional R&D mechanism, it would take months, if not years, before someone gets the funding needed to actually do the research. You know, then five years later, you know, we might have a product, you know, that could be turned into uh, something that is scalable and sustainable. That's too long, right? Um, things are happening so fast and so dynamically right now that we need a way to actually um, come up with innovations and, and, and get the innovations out to as many people as possible uh, in a much faster cycle. Um, and so uh, there's so many things. So we initially had actually, we were going to focus on two other ideas. You know, one was uh, maternal and newborn health, and the other one is on sustainable food systems. But because of the pandemic, you know, happening right now, um, we decided that, you know, maybe... Uh, we'll focus on the pandemic um, next, you know, uh, for uh, for our innovation challenge and, um, you know, a summer accelerator that we're planning at the moment. So, yeah, they're just, uh, the, the possibilities are endless. What, um, what kind of things have you learned? Like you did your MBA recently at, for, for those folks that don't know it, the school's um, IE business school, it's in Madrid. It's, I think, ranked pretty consistently in the top, 10 or five schools um, in the world. And so I'm interested to know, like you said that you went through this reinvention process and, and mm. through that process, you came out with Firefly. Um, and so I'd be interested to know, what have you learned in, through your business school training that you think is going to be really helpful? Like what's that number one most important thing that's going to be helpful as you're launching Firefly and, and trying to build uh, this platform out? Yeah, so I think besides a foundational business knowledge um, that I acquired at uh, at IE, uh, one thing that IE has taught me was to be bold, uh, be bold in terms of uh, the ideas that I put forward. You know, nothing is really too crazy um, to 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 think about and you know try to uh, play with and see if I can you know come up with a uh, uh, you know, a, a test, you know, to see um, how this idea might fly. Um, but also be bold in talking to everyone, 
Um, and, you know, everyone has uh, the potential um, to share some kind of insight with me uh, or connect me, you know, with someone else, you know, that person knows who then, you know, might be able to help me, right? So really kind of putting yourself out there and uh, talking to as many people as possible, um, you know, and that takes, um, that's not natural, you know, for a lot of people. Um, uh, bold also in not being afraid to fail. So I have no idea if Firefly Innovation is going to work. Um, I could, it, could, it could completely fall flat on its face, you know, and, um, but that's okay, right? Um, because if I don't try this, I will never know. Um, if it has a potential to succeed and do some good, you know, for public health. Um, and so we're just kind of plugging along. I mean, we don't have, you know, really much uh, in the way of funding. Uh, it's really a, a bootstrapped, you know, operation right now. I've got a couple of uh, diehard, you know, staffers, you know, who, uh, like me, really believe uh, in the cause and the possibilities. And so, you know, they're putting in their time and energy, um, you know, to really help me build this. And uh, and, and so, um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing that I think is so important that IE has taught me um, is the virtue of collaboration um, in um, letting others do what they do best. Um, as much, just as much as how, you know, my mentors in life, you know, have given me the trust to let me do what I needed to do. I also need to trust others, you know, to come through. And sometimes they may get to the destination via a different way than how I would do it, but that's okay. You know, and sometimes, you know, what they come up with may not be as perfect to my eyes as, um, uh, as it is, you know, to their eyes, but that's also okay. Because the, the goal here is not to find a unanimous sense of perfection. Um, the, the goal here is to really just move um, and to actually progress and, and, and learn, you know, uh, as we progress. And um, so I think that that's really important, you know, because I think for many of us, especially people, I think, who, who have had success in life, you know, there's a tendency that we, we have to be in control of everything and we have to do everything ourselves. Um, but uh, IE has really taught me otherwise. And, and that was a hard lesson. Um, you know, I, that was a, a, a very uh, difficult but valuable lesson. Um, so those are, I think, some really, really key lessons that I learned um, through my MBA experience that I think, well, I will carry with me, you know, uh, till the day I die. Um, and these are the kinds of things that, you know, you can't really just learn um, by reading a textbook. Yeah, they're not intuitive. It's something that you really have to experience. Definitely. Terry, if you, if you look kind of 10 years out with Firefly, Mm. Like what's what's the best case scenario for you? What, what does success look like 10 years from now? Um, I would say that uh, we would have a really robust, um, you know, accelerator um, and uh, uh, incubator, you know, um, going. Or we would have a network um, of public health entrepreneurs, uh, hopefully uh, the a global first. Uh, I don't think it quite exists, um, not in this form uh, uh, yet. And, um, and, 
you know, and that we are able to connect um, the teams that come through our platform, you know, to funding um, so that they themselves can be, go on to become successful ventures. Uh, that would bring me tremendous uh, satisfaction. Um, and, um, and, and I, you know, I would uh, like for entrepreneurship uh, as a concept, as a process uh, to be, become mainstream uh, in the field of public health. Public health historically has been very wary of public sector mechanisms uh, to drive uh, public health change. And so this is definitely uncomfortable uh, for many people in public health. Uh, but just like what I did with system science and obesity and chronic disease, pre disease prevention, you know, uh, in the last, uh, uh, what, 10, 15 years, um, I'm hoping that in 10 years time, you know, um, people will think of entrepreneurship in the context of public health uh, as just second nature. Do you think Bill Gates, and I know that he does a lot of work through his foundation, and it's a foundation, not a business, but mm -hmm. do you think that he has brought some of that thinking into public health already? I think that, um, yes, to some extent. I think that in the areas of HIV, malaria, uh, infectious diseases in the global context, Polio. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there is um, uh, more of an embrace, um, you know, for uh, entrepreneurial methods. Uh, I think in chronic disease, uh, not so much. Um, and so this is why, you know, this is so new right now. Terry, I want to turn back to something that you mentioned a bit earlier on the pandemic that we're, we're currently living through. And um, I'd be interested to know, I know this isn't your area of expertise. You're, you're not, a, I don't think, a, a researcher on pandemics, but, but you're obviously very experienced in public health and and. I'd be interested to get your your take on what's happening right now. So, so based on your research and what you've kind of um, done in in, uh, in not a, a serious sense, not a, a an academic sense, but but what has your research kind of shown you so far about this COVID nineteen? Well, so going back to kind of what I was talking about, system science um, to address coronavirus, um, we definitely need a, a systems approach um, of a solution. Um, to tackle uh, the issue. This is not just about the virus. Um, it is about the, uh, all the uh, uh, interconnecting um, parts um, of our system, um, you know, from community to policy to individual behavior, um, how all of that, all of those um, aspects need to be aligned um, in order for us to tackle this. If you look at the uh, experiences, you know, coming out of Asia, um, you know, um, there seemed to be sort of like a 45 to 60 day cycle, you know, from the initial surge, um, you know, in the outbreak um, to the beginning um, of a slowdown. Um, and that's with, you know, drastic interventions. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm kind of thinking here, like we may be uh, stuck in our houses, you know, for uh, quite a few weeks still, if not months. Uh, it may take more time, um, you know, here in the U.S. Uh, or in Canada, um, because drastic measures are only starting just now, um, and they're not really countrywide uh, in the U.S. or in Canada yet. So, um, so, so we could, you know, end up seeing like, uh, you know, a, 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 
a longer time horizon um, before we uh, really peak um, and uh, begin to see like the epidemic slow down here. Um, I think that we need serious preparation uh, between now and September um, because there could be a second wave in the fall, uh, given the high transmissibility of COVID-19. Um, and this worries me a great deal um, because of the experience of the Spanish flu in 1918. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the, uh, the, the, the bulk of the epidemic um, and the deaths, you know, really occurred in the fall, um, uh, not in the spring. So um, I think, you know, even if we begin to see the cases drop um, in the coming months, uh, we can't be complacent, you know, uh, because in the summertime, maybe cases are low and life goes back to normal. People are happy celebrating summer um, and then they get complacent. And then when the fall hits, uh, you know, we could be in trouble. So I think we really, really need to think about, you know, how to, uh, construct the system that is needed, um, you know, to be ready uh, for the um, potential uh, resurgence um, in, in the fall. I think, you know, specific uh, interventions that are needed, um, and this is not really news uh, to anyone necessarily, uh, but obviously testing capabilities uh, have to be much enhanced. We need rapid tests, maybe even home testing if possible. Um, so test kits can be sent to people um, and people can test themselves. Um, investigating treatment options. Um, there are several trials underway using existing drugs. Um, too early to say yet, um, you know, what, uh, what will come um, um, out of these trials. But uh, to the extent that, you know, there are existing drugs uh, that can work uh, either alone or in combination, Obviously, that will be a great help, you know, particularly ahead of the potential resurgence in the fall. Uh, new drugs and vaccines are uh, unlikely to be ready uh, anytime soon. Um, you know, best case scenario uh, would be that they're 12 to 18 months um, out uh, and maybe longer. Um, so I don't think that that's going to help us, um, you know, for next fall. Uh, there are some... Um, you know, kind of going back to Firefly Innovations, I mean, there's some really interesting sort of technological solutions um, that countries have tried uh, that, you know, can play a part. They're not the silver bullet necessarily, but they can be a part of a system solution. So in Taiwan, for instance, um, you know, they've, uh, they've used, uh, they've developed a, an app, you know, very quickly to essentially... I uh, let consumers know, um, you know, where masks are available, um, you know, so like, you know, like the map will show you, the, the app will show you like all the pharmacies around you and uh, the level of stock, you know, that pharmacies have in terms of masks. Um, and so, you know, I mean, this obviously is coupled with other government policies to ensure that, you know, there's no price gouging and that, you know, uh, there is a... a, a uh, adequate supply of masks, you know, in the country, um, and uh, people can't ship masks, you know, overseas. You know, so lots of other policies in place to ensure that uh, the country doesn't run out of um, the supply, the necessary supply. Um, but I think some of these technology solutions are very interesting, and um, and uh, and in where possible, you know, they should be incorporated um, into a systems uh, package. So, uh, yeah, and um, 
I think that uh, we're obviously, you know, woefully uh, and, you know, unprepared um, in addressing um, COVID-19 here in the U.S. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the news has uh, uh, been uh, very clear on that point. And so, um, but I think that we still have a chance, you know, to do better uh, between now um, and the autumn. Do you know what the likelihood of this recurrence in this the spring or sorry the fall is? Like I know Spanish flu. We're talking nineteen eighteen here, so a hundred years ago, and uh, sure. at that time, I, I it was almost a, kind of a similar timeline where where the disease came up in February and March and and faded away, and then kind of made a, a resurgence, like you said, in in that kind of September period, and that's when it uh, came back more deadly than ever and ended up killing. 50 million people worldwide and infecting, I think, 500 million. Yeah. So I mean, no one knows for sure, of course, but, you know, I mean, COVID, is, COVID-19 is proving to be um, highly infectious. So it has very high transmission rates and, um, you know, so that's not good. <laughs> um, the other part that worries me is that, you um, you know, in speaking to colleagues in other parts of the world, uh, you know, you have um, uh, countries in the southern hem- southern hemisphere that are not yet necessarily taking this seriously. Um, whether it's a, some of them are in the southern hemisphere, others are, you know, just in warmer uh, zones, warmer climates, um, and uh, where the virus hasn't hit, you know, quite as hard. And so I, I am worried um, that, uh, you know, that those countries will eventually be hit um, in a couple of months time or maybe sooner um, by a massive outbreak um, and they won't be able to cope with um, the outbreak, uh, you know, uh, because they don't necessarily have the social or health system uh, to deal with uh, the, uh, the, the pan- uh, pandemic. And, um, and then so, like, if over the summer period, you know, we um, see um, a suppression of cases, you know, here in the U.S. and Canada, um, but that some of these other parts of the world, you know, began to see a massive outbreak, you know, that eventually may come back to us uh, come uh, September, October. And, um, and so, so I'm very concerned. I'm very, very concerned. I'm also very concerned about the economic impact um, of, uh, of, of coronavirus and, uh, and the subsequent uh, health impact of the economic impact. So we know from um, the 2008 financial crisis, uh, for instance, that many people died um, as a result of the economic impact. And, um, you know, uh, we're going to find out pretty soon here in the U.S., um, you know, what the uh, unemployment situation is going to be like. And, um, you know, some of the numbers that I'm seeing are uh, pretty startling. And that's going to have a health impact on people. You know, when people lose jobs and they don't have uh, health insurance anymore, um, maybe they're, they have mental health issues, they're depressed you know, all of which uh, can take a toll um, on uh, the health of individuals um, and the health of the system. And so I think that, you know, uh, these are things that we need to be thinking about. I know that, you know, like we're dealing with a lot of urgent uh, uh, 
infections and 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 you know deaths right now um, by uh, the uh, the the you know impacts you know really go beyond um, what we see in terms of the numbers in the news right now, and uh, and we have to be be prepared um, for uh, the longer term impact um, of this epidemic. Yeah, it's um, just a obviously a tragic thing for everybody in the world, and it's. I think it's an interesting kind of realization that I've had recently is how I think most of us live our lives thinking that we have this control over the outcomes in our lives. If I do this, this, and this, if I go to school here, I'll get a good job. And Mm -hmm. kind of realizing through this experience, the fragility of that kind of expectation of control. No, definitely. And I just think that life is going to be different after this. Life will not go back to what it was, and um, and the way that we are, um, you know, having to work from home and operate in an online uh, environment, uh, this may very well be the new normal. And uh, it has made me appreciate relationships way more. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? I mean, I have uh, talked to my family and friends more this week than probably all of the last like you know two years combined. <laughs> uh, Terry, you got to call your parents more, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's true, but it's true. You know, like it, it really, I, you know, where I, I, we, we have to innovate. You know, like we, um, my uh, business school colleagues and and I, we had a, a, a Zoom meeting uh, yesterday. Um, and we specifically chose like the same time where we used to have classes, you know, uh, all classes on a Saturday. So it was really quite nice, very poignant. And, um, and it was just so wonderful. You know, it was like 90 minutes, um, but we were able to reconnect and, you know, learn more about what was happening in different parts of the world, um, you know, how people are coping with it. Um, and, uh, and now we're planning to have a party, a virtual cocktail party oh. next week. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, so like, that's how we're going to continue to connect and socialize, you know, given the circumstances. Um, and you know what, and what's amazing is these are people who, you know, if it weren't for this situation, like there would have been like no party with them either way, you know, it wouldn't have been a physical party with them because they're all in different parts of the world. Um, but because of this, you know, we're now making an effort, you know, to actually get online and, uh, you know, have a cocktail with each other over the internet. <laughs> so, yeah, so I do think that we, this is definitely um, uh, motivating us, you know, to think differently about how we live, how we work, um, what's important in life. Um, and how we know. see our own health as well. I think that exactly. that again, it yeah. goes back to the agency where we always feel like we have control over our health, but it's like those people yeah. that get the, the awful random cancer that is terminal in two months and they, they were never a smoker and they didn't drink and, and it's just a fluke. And now I, maybe there's a little bit more empathy for, although I'm sure there always was, but I know for me, it's, it's kind of, and I, I'm not impacted by the virus, but I can just empathize more with those random chance events. Right, right. And um, yeah, so maybe this will, you know, 
um, help us redefine what success is, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, and what's really important and a priority in life, um, because life can be uh, very fragile and short. Um, and uh, so I know for me, um, you know, uh, I have definitely um, just over the years, you know, as I, as I got older, you know, I, I definitely think of success differently than when I was 25 or 30. Um, and I think that this, uh, the current experience experience uh, is going to further accelerate, you know, um, uh, that line of thinking, you know, for me and probably for a lot of my friends as well. Yeah, it takes away some of the uh, Instagram influencer jet setting uh, appeal, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. Terry, before before we turn to you as a person, I just want to finish off with a couple of uh, rapid fire questions here. So, if you only had two hours a week to focus on your research, what would you focus on? Gosh, um, I would probably. I wish I could spend all of my time on building Firefly Innovations. <laughs> uh, to, to, I mean, I, this is really kind of where my passion is right now, and I really want to see it uh, take off. Um, and I really feel like we're onto something um, that has the potential to transform the field in, in, and do a lot of good um, for society. Uh, so if I had the, if, you know, if I have all the time in the world or only two hours uh, a week, uh, as you said, you know, I probably want to focus on, uh, you know, writing about it, disseminating our ideas about Firefly um, and, uh, and, and fundraising, you know, finding some resources to sustain um, my staff. Um, but I have a lot of other research teaching and <laughs> responsibilities and uh so i need to balance my time uh, against all of those other uh sets of tasks looking back at yourself at 22 or 21 when you were coming out of university or undergrad what kind of advice would you have given yourself oh that's a great question um probably take advantage of more courses you know i feel like i was always you know, a little impetuous. Um, I was always kind of in a, in a hurry to get done, you know, to, 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 to move up, you know, if you will. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, I, I, I could have taken, you know, a little bit more time to just take advantage, you know, of like the course offerings, you know, uh, at my university, um, focus on developing and keeping up, you know, with more hobbies. I mean, that's, I think, one thing that I'm definitely realizing, especially now this week, you know, that would <laughs> be very, very helpful uh, in helping me cope, you know, with the current situation. If I had uh, more hobbies that I can engage in, um, you know, at home. And, uh, and, and I think that this is a good uh, reminder, you know, that like, thinking ahead, you know, retirement age, you know, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely more hobbies. I mean, I have obviously interests, you know, things that I like to do. Um, but I think over the years, I, I, I have been so consumed by my work um, that it's been hard to uh, really uh, take the time um, to keep up uh, with those hobbies. Terry, I've got one word for you, golf. That is the perfect retirement, <laughs> perfect retirement <laughs> hobby. <laughs> is that allowed? Probably not right now, right? I no think you have to do it in your apartment. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, only we golf for now. Okay. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, Terry, accomplished obviously really incredible things in this world. Like, for example, you you've published 150 papers, almost 150 papers. You've you've done your PhD, you've you've completed your, your MBA at one of the premier institutions in the world. And so you've obviously had this drive to achieve and you've spoken about that a little bit. Do you know where that comes from? I think that I'm naturally a curious person. I think curiosity um, is a main driver for me. Um, I also maybe related to that. I think I get bored easily. So I, (laughs) I think this is partly why, you know, I mentioned that I, you know, I, I didn't really plan it this way. It just kind of worked out over the course of my life. And now I've kind of made it into, uh, you know, a, a guide uh, for myself, um, you know, to reinvent myself every five years. Um, and, um, and I think that that is really important. You know, for me, I need that, that, I need that dynamism, you know, I need change. I like change. And, um, and, and so, like, this notion that, you know, we're always kind of um, on the move and there's always something new uh, to learn um, and more dots, you know, to connect, uh, that is a huge motivator for me. I love that. You said that a couple of times, but reinvent yourself every five years. I've got to be honest. Originally, when you said that, I felt my palms get sweaty and I thought, oh my gosh, like that's a terrifying thing to consider. But now, now that you've said it a couple of times, I think I'm going to adopt that myself. And that's just, a, it's liberating almost in some ways to know that you have to change. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and, 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 and you may decide to stay put, you know, uh, when the five year is up. Um, but that, you know, you can stay put and do something different, you know? So it doesn't always mean that you have to move or go to a different job. Um, but, but I do think that like this has helped me like not get stale and it has allowed me to come into contact, you know, with, uh, different spheres in our world um, and, 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 and that exposure is critical to understanding the system, right? We can't under the system if we don't actually see and experience, um, the different components of the system. And, and, and it's only until you actually see and experience them that you're able to actually connect the dots to connect, you know, these components, um, and figure out like how you could potentially, make the components work better, um, you know, with each other. And, uh, and ultimately, that is what it's going to take uh, to address complex issues like the obesity epidemic or the corona- coronavirus epidemic. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, really, I think, at the, at the core of who I am and, uh, and what drives my work uh, now. Well, I'm, I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of the listeners out there. Um, I know that people like you, Terry, that achieve so much and constantly put themselves out there with their own ideas and um, beliefs and creating things from scratch. I know that people like you and, and people that listen to this podcast, entrepreneurs, business owners alike, they uh, 
they face challenges and they have to figure out how to push through those challenges. So I'm interested to know from you, assuming that you've faced all these challenges, how do you uh, deal with resilience? How do you stay resilient through challenge? You know, I, I think back to like some of the tricks I've developed, like, you know, over, over the years, uh, since I was a little kid, you know, oftentimes I would um, play games in my head. Okay, if I, if I did this, then, you know, I'll be able to do this other thing, you know? Um, and so I think that it's important that we kind of set um, to, to get ourselves started, you know, we need to kind of set like small achievable goals. And then once you achieve those goals, success then breeds success, right? So those goals could be something as, you know, silly as, you know, I am just going to um, run around the block like five, five laps today, okay? And after that, I'll be able to, you know, go do this other thing. Um, it could be something very silly, and um, but but part of that is to kind of build up this sense of self-efficacy. That yes, you know, um, I can do this, um, and and that belief I think is half of the battle. Um, and then the other part I think is to focus on just doing your best and not worrying too much about the outcome. I mean, of course, I would lie. You know, I would be lying if I said that I didn't care about the outcome. Everybody cares about the outcome. Mm. But there's also something really valuable about the process. Um, and if you did your best and the outcome doesn't come out quite, you know, like how you imagined, like that, that's okay. Because we don't always get what we want anyway, right? Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Um, but knowing that, um, you know, you did your best and you learned something in that process, uh, whether it's about yourself or about how you work with other people or something else, that's extremely valuable. So not forgetting the importance and the value of the process uh, apart from the outcome, I think is also a very uh, uh, important piece. Um, and I guess the third thing I would say is being strategic about where to invest energy. Um, you know, the, there's only, you know, time and energy, um, you know, are finite. And so, uh, so one does have to be strategic, right? Um, and I think one of the things that I, I try to do, um, just a, it's a habit or a skill that I, you know, um, kind of picked up um, throughout my life is I try not to dwell on a problem that I can't solve for too long. So if I can't solve it, I'm, I, I move on to something else and then come back to it another day. Um, and it helps me to be efficient and build up more self-efficacy as I get other things done. So, um, you know, so for me, that's also another way um, to, again, you know, uh, slowly but surely, you know, build up the resilience uh, in the face of, you know, complex life or professional challenges. Well, I'm a ruminator myself, so I constantly look back over things that I can't control. So I've had to learn myself how to kind of really narrow that focus and uh, understand that, just like you said, those problems that you can't solve or that are outside of your control, you kind of just have to move on. And so 
um, yeah, I've had to do a lot of learning around around that. Otherwise, I would literally drive myself crazy. What do you think is the most important thing looking back over the last year that you've learned? Over the last year? Oh, gosh. I don't remember what I did yesterday. You asked me about... <laughs> what did you have for dinner last night? <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, last year uh, that I think is the most important... Well, I mean, I guess, you know, the launch of Firefly, you know, uh, you know, which happened last year, um, you know, it, I think is really, really crucial. And I think I, um, you know, uh, I, I, I brought on a, a small but dedicated team, um, again, you know, completely through a bootstrapped, you know, manner. Uh, to really help uh, drive Firefly Innovations, um, you know, forward. And we made some, I think, good progress uh, just in the last, uh, you know, six months. Um, I think that that's, you know, uh, really, really great. And sort of giving the, the team the freedom, you know, and the, the leeway um, and independence um, to... Uh, to really be creative and, and put their own vision forward. Uh, that's been hard, you know, for me to do sometimes. Um, but I think that, uh, but it, it has um, paid dividends. You know, it has allowed the team um, to take it further uh, than if I had to be in control at all times. So one thing that we always do at our weekly Strive meeting, so it's a, a weekly meeting of, of entrepreneurs and business owners. We meet it from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. once a week, Monday mornings, and we, we set goals and hold each other accountable. And then each week, one person uh, has the opportunity to tell the rest of the group, hey, this is my blind spot. Like, this is what I think is holding me back from achieving higher levels of success. And then as a group, we go around and we really just drill down to, to what that exactly is and, and to offer some advice and feedback. And so I want to turn that question to you, Terry. And I, I'll ask for a little bit of vulnerability here, but Looking at yourself, what do you think is holding you back from achieving even higher levels of success? It's a great question. I think for me at this point in my life, uh, I'm reevaluating uh, what success means to me. And success to me is not necessarily making more money or publishing more papers. You know, um, I success for me is really a rebalancing of my work um, in my personal life, uh, in my other pursuit of my other interests. Um, and um, and I, I, I'm finding it difficult um, to make that pivot um, as much as I would like, uh, in part because of all the modern day trappings you know, um, living in a very expensive city and, you know, having to pay the mortgage and, you know, uh, uh, indulge and in and eat and indulge in the material, um, you know, uh, stuff, you know, that we think we need, but we really don't. Um, and so, you know, and, and so I, 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 there, there are days where I think, gosh, you know, I could um, move out of New York and I could have a completely different life, um, you know, where I may be able to have a better balance. 
Um, and, um, uh, you know, but, but it's difficult, you know, it's hard to give up, you know, what you currently have, um, and like start over. Um, and so, so I think what's holding me back really, you know, is, is just that is sort of like these uh, economic trappings, you know, if you will. Um, and, uh, uh, but but little by little, you know, I, I find myself kind of shifting, you know. Um, I think I'll get there eventually. It just might take me a little bit of time. Um, but I, I definitely am at a, at a point in my life where I don't really want to keep doing things that I don't want to do, <laughs> that I don't yeah. enjoy. Um, and, uh, and there are parts of my work um, that I absolutely love, and then there are parts that I really don't enjoy. And I think that, you know, I would like to be able to make more conscious choices um, in terms of what I spent my time on um, going forward. Um, and that's probably uh, the lesson, you know, between now and uh, when I turn 50. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, so, so yeah, so I think that, you know, that sort of like, for me, the higher level of success uh, is really just that. It's a rebalancing of how I spend my energy. And I'm not quite there yet, um, but I like to be. Well, Terry, I uh, am just honored that you were interested in sitting down for this conversation. And I know that you've inspired me to be much more open to change, especially given the circumstances going on in the world right now. And, and um, when you spoke about that desire to change every five years and reinvent yourself, that really resonated with me. And so I just want to thank you for sitting down with us and for sharing your knowledge, your insights, because you're somebody that is always striving for more. And you, I'm just, uh, just really grateful that you wanted to sit down. And for the listeners out there, if you want to learn more about Terry, you can find him personally on LinkedIn at Terry Huang. H-U-A-N-G. You can also learn more about Firefly Innovations by staying tuned at sph.cuny.edu. Terry, I am honored that you sat down with us today and and thank you for sharing your knowledge. Hey, thank you so much, Jared. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator. And find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.